the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. As we head into Hour 3 this Tuesday, it's a delight to do so with Hugh Hallman, who is in studio with us. Uh, I mentioned him earlier, a public servant in the private sector. I like that kind of uh, – it's a, it's, a, it's a good way to abbreviate everything you do, attorney, educator, civic – can I say that? Yeah. Confounding. Yeah, no, it's good. A public servant in the private sector. You do a lot of great public service. Anyway, we're delighted to have you, as we always are. Hugh, you are uniquely good at uh, tying together – uh, seemingly disparate issues uh, as all being kind of part of part of one core. And uh, as, uh, as we were talking over the hour, top of the hour break, you were kind of putting together a few of the things that we had discussed earlier. And I think you heard my interview with Mike Bailey on the homeless issue, the chronic homeless issue as well. So I turn it over to you to take it wherever you'd like to start, and then we'll work centrifugally as well. I'm not going to try to repeat that word. I think that's the only time I got it right. (laughs) My son, Lewis, over whether it's (laughs) centrifugal force or centripetal force. But nonetheless, first, I'd like to note your last hour uh, guest, Mike Bailey, Michael G. Bailey, a lawyer who is uh, doesn't get much headline coverage, in part because he is he is truly what we think of as the workhorse. He's the guy who puts on all the harness and pulls the entire wagon most of the time by himself. And the work he has done to counter the press to continue to celebrate homelessness as a First Amendment right, uh, this is hard work. It's not, it's not accepted by most folks in, in the media these days that somehow his work is to attack uh, people who are homeless in Phoenix. And instead, what you really understand that is motivating him is the same thing that motivates you when you talk about this, that the conditions we are allowing to continue and fester in downtown Phoenix and across the Ninth Circuit because of the Boise case, the, the Martin case, um, is outrageous. And it is less than humanity. Uh, we have taken human beings and put them into places where policing is not being undertaken because the pressure on our police officers is such that they shall not uh, enforce the law in the zone, it was called in Phoenix, still is. And as a result, you didn't merely end up with uh, people who were abusing themselves and self-harming. You were seeing homeless people being attacked by other homeless people continuously outrageous numbers of rape cases and beatings and theft, among other things, and that this has been going on in the in the sense of somehow being kind and decent, uh, to, to steal a bit of a phrase, that nature is uh, occasionally cruel so that it may be very kind. In this instance, we pretended to be kind while being terribly cruel and doing it with government power. Yeah. And Mike's effort uh, to reverse that concept is extraordinary and and deserves rounds of applause from people across the political aisles because it is trying to return to currently homeless people humanity. And we can't do it by, I will use the concept, by using enabling behavior. 
we need to use all of our resources to try to address the social problems that are underlying the homelessness that is uh, being demonstrated there and recognize that allowing people to live in these conditions is not humane. It's ridiculous. So that's one concept. So thank you, Michael G. It's Bailey. It's dehumanizing. That. Maybe that's really the word for the hour, dehumanizing. Indeed. Okay. And uh, then we have your monologue in, in the first hour that really touches on the crazy notions that apparently the left believes only certain lessons can be taught. And those lessons are, as we discussed a couple of weeks ago here in the city of Phoenix, a school board for a school district refusing to uh, reenter a contract that had been going on for 11 years to allow the students from a particular private Christian university to do student teaching in that district. Why? Because the university had values posted on its website that raised concerns for a school board member who used those concerns to stop the contract from going forward, which had otherwise been proposed by the school district staff as a consent item, meaning that the, the, the school board would vote on it without consideration, much consideration, because it was so obvious that it should be done. Well, what was the concern? That the students from this university would have been uh, taught in an environment in which Christian values were somehow expressed. And specifically, the website talked about the fact that they would teach truth informed by Christian values. And the challenge I have for school board members of that district is to then articulate, what do you think the founding principles of this country were? The country's constitution, the country's declaration of independence, the main motive vehicles that create the construct in which we live today were created by mostly men, certainly advised by women, old dollies out there still today, mm-hmm. uh, selling donuts and not uh, telling her husband how to write the Constitution. But nonetheless, Dolly Madison had an impact, uh, as did many other women, in writing these documents that were informed by their Christian values. But they were not writing Christianity and and concepts that required belief. In fact, just the opposite. The First Amendment, which is to protect freedom of religion, was written precisely because most of the sects of Christianity in this country were worried that the Church of England would be imposed on this society and somehow rule the day. So we gave a very big nod to diversity of religious views. This is written by people who primarily viewed themselves as Christian. It's still an open question, I suppose, whether or not Thomas Jefferson believed himself a Christian. Uh, But the point being, he did refer to nature and nature's God as the driving force behind what he was doing. And yet we cannot have that taught in the classroom. Oh, wait, that's not what the issue was. The issue was merely that people taught at a university with those values couldn't appear in a classroom for fear of what? That they would... Uh, inculcate these values by osmosis into children because there is not an instance cited by that school district or any of those board members that any of the student teachers ever brought to the uh, district ever violated any of the district's diversity policies at all. So now the left is saying that a person with Christian values can't even be trusted to stand in a classroom because they might somehow exude Christianity and Christian values through osmosis into the heads of these children, causing these school board members to suddenly feel, quote, unsafe, unquote, in their district, because somehow children would become uh, less than uh, accepting of diverse uh, lifestyles. Amazing. And yet, 
somehow with our fifth school shooting, it is only lessons of violence and the use of guns that can be taught apparently through television and uh, television movies. That can be taught by example. But drag queens reading stories to children doesn't convey any qualitative information about the adoption of a different lifestyle. Now, I'm not here to criticize somebody if they want to become a drag queen. That is your choice. But don't tell me that modeling that behavior for young children doesn't convey information to them about whether or not that's something that society is not only accepting, but promoting. So we have this from uh, the uh, co-founder of the New York chapter, who founded uh, the Drag Queen Storytime Hour chapter, uh, the Drag Story Hour um, in, in New York, stating, and I quote, uh, that the purpose is it that they strive, quote, to capture the imagination and play of gender fluidity of childhood and give kids glamorous, positive, and unabashedly queer role models, period, unquote. Role models. Role models. Role models. So the whole concept of the word role model, of course, is to demonstrate behavior that is modeled for those for whom you are modeling the behavior. You can't have it both ways, folks. You can't say that uh, children lose to you learn to use guns against one another by watching televisions and movies, that they learn to smoke cigarettes by Joe Camel being on billboards, and yet then say it's acceptable to advertise marijuana in the same way with no such consequences, to promote uh, the reading of stories by drag queens in schools and libraries with no such consequences. Pick your point. Now, I happen to believe that all of that is true, that children can learn to smoke by watching Joe Camel. There is, I think there was absolutely decent philosophy behind making those decisions. And I'm somebody who's a conservative. Do I believe that we need to use government to address those kinds of issues? Certainly. But then we can't use government to pretend that we're not teaching children all kinds of lessons that are different from the traditional lessons that have been taught through our society. Well, if you um, missed my monologue, I would often say go back to the first hour and uh, you can access it at 960thepatriot.com. I don't need to say that. Hugh just did a better job of it, folks. Um, He and I will be right back. Welcome back to the uh, Seth Leapson Show. Hugh Hallman is our guest. We were talking uh, in the first hour, Hugh, and you brought it up uh, very well and poignantly in the last segment, that we engage in a, f- in a form of fiction when, we, when it comes to art and culture. And that fiction is that whenever someone objects to something being displayed with public funds or to our children— with private or public funds, whenever someone objects to that, the right to object is um, is to be curtailed because it is subjective uh, or perhaps too opinion-based. That's a fiction of sorts because we have known since the time before even Plato uh, or Greek philosophy that there is a point, and everyone who rears children knows this, anyone who has studied life knows this, there is a point to something being called good art or good reading material. There is a reason 
that there are classics in reading. There is a reason that we think libraries themselves are important, and the reason we think libraries or books are important, perhaps even the First Amendment to protect them, is because people can be improved by them. That is the notion behind and backstopping all of this discussion about whether it's books in schools or books in libraries or art on a stage, whether that stage is a library or whether it's Broadway. The idea is that we improve ourselves and our culture with whether they are good stories or whether they are important stories, whether they are moral tales, that the point is to improve the condition. A, a society without culture is no society, in other words. Well, if we think people – this was Irving Crystal's point, I suppose – if we think people can be improved by a book or a piece of art, why can we not also maintain the capacity to think that they might be harmed by such? Um, that, in other words, not every piece of writing is morally beneficial and not every piece of art is morally neutral. We have the ability to make these distinctions, do we not? We have it in the criminal law, for example, that child pornography is outlawed, why adult pornography is not, because somehow, while we want to be as libertarian as possible with allowing adults to engage in whatever kind of cultural non-harmful behavior to another person they may want to, it is distortive and changing and um, subversive to the good upbringing and nurturing of the childhood mind to expose them to age-inappropriate materials they are not capable of absorbing. Is, is, is there not a point to understanding that if people can be improved by art or books, they can also be harmed by them? Isn't that all we're saying, and isn't it that second part of the equation we seem to be forgetting. That good books can elevate yeah. and bad books can destroy. We think that, don't we? And we have a culture that is effectively called the Western culture based on not really everything from the West. It is to say it didn't come from Europe. It right. came from the Middle East primarily over 4,000 years. And ultimately, the sewer that was Europe until about 1400 uh, then finally adopted many of those lessons. And we Athens uh, needed Jerusalem. That, that's correct. <laughs> Jerusalem existed prior to Athens right. and, and prior to prior right. to London. Right. And, you know, as, as we look uh, aghast at what's going on in the Middle East now, as people are killing one another for religious reasons, we forget that, of course, a thousand years ago, the Brits were killing one another for religious reasons in, in the same kind of slaughter. Well, welcome, welcome to the humankind. The point being that good books can elevate and and uh, bad books can cause us to lose ourselves. And that is to say we can be influenced by the outside, whether it's a book, a picture, a movie. Anybody who then argues that these kinds of lessons that the left want to have taught about diversity and interest and say that somehow they are value neutral, um, then have to run smack into the point you made earlier that we have uh, restrictions on child pornography precisely because not because the children are in the pictures. It's because they've been used in those kinds of things as well as are the subject of the purchase right. that uh, that there is a desire to influence children in a certain direction. I would also add even in the adult universe, we recognize that 
pornographic material alters human minds and chemistry, and we have lots of people out there who are now addicted to porn and cannot have normal human relationships because they have created universes in their own minds that can't not be uh, uh, followed. And so we have all these kinds of recognitions of the fact that the human condition can be altered by the material coming from the outside. Except, apparently, when it is messaging from the left that they want first to deny they are trying to seek adoption of. Then, once it's adopted, we'll scream it from the rooftops as being appropriate. And then, eventually, we'll mandate it. That is the dialectic. dialectic. And so, here we are having this debate yet again because you've got a governor in Florida saying that drag uh, queen uh, reading hours are not going to be accepted in public schools and libraries, and somehow that is an outrage to the left. And they're starting that drumbeat of saying that that there is no intention to alter children's views or to inculcate those values in them. This is a values-neutral opportunity to demonstrate diversity and acceptance. And my response to that is nonsense. We have to recognize that human values are conveyed as they always have been conveyed from the prior generation to the new generation. And if we don't convey those values that we find important here, we will lose them. You know, there's a growing feminist objection to these drag queen uh, uh, performances as well, which I quite understand and wonder what took so long. Um, We've, for the most part, uh, blessedly banned and shamed minstrel shows because they were derogatory to uh, people of minority races when they were engaged upon. And when you see some of these feminists rising up against these, what 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 these are is mocking of a mockery of women. What that, that that's what this is. This is men dressed as women mocking women as sexual objects. By the way, as sexualized objects, which it took us some. How we entertain ourselves matters. And and th- that's a massively important point. So, ladies and gentlemen, don't miss the fact that folks on the left and the right are converging about why this is not good behavior. In exactly the same way, 40 years ago, while we had the left originally arguing the First Amendment right to pornography, eventually congealing with the right to say pornography is destructive to women. Right. And that the left joined in that effort. So the... Uh, People from the Clinton administration joined in the effort to start pushing back on pornographers from the left. Um, Cass now we Sunst- got the Communications well, Decency Ca- Act. Ca- yeah. Cass Sunstein, one right. of my professors Cass. who ultimately uh, was a czar for uh, another president, yeah. uh, was involved in that work. Right. And so it was interesting. And we're seeing, going to see, I think, the same thing happen here. But I hope it's not too late. Why do I say that? Well, uh, to, to the main point that books and libraries are crucial to the success of Western culture and history, I take you to the Library of Alexandria. Mm -hmm. Its destruction led, ultimately, to the loss of human knowledge that was so important we entered what were called the Dark Ages. And it uh, should not be uh, thought of as ironic that ultimately was an island people, the Irish, whose work through church organizations preserved the knowledge that was known and brought it back to life that gave us the Renaissance. Exactly. Well put, Hugh. Um, We'll pick up on this when we come back, because this uncomfortably enters into the discussion about the tremendous rise we're seeing in the recognition of transgender debates and transgender youth. We'll talk about that when we come back. Don't go away.
<laughs> Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Hugh Hallman is my guest. We've been talking about um, the importance of culture and education and the importance of improving the human condition and the nonsense, really, the nonsensical point or nonsensical argument that how we entertain ourselves doesn't matter and doesn't have an impact of course it does, which is why you see people pushing so hard for certain aims and directions of it. It cannot be simply that a destigmatization has taken place over the last five years in this country, Hugh, that has allowed the rise of stories about transgender youth to become so much more um, ubiquitous than they have. You would read the paper or watch television up until about the year 2017 in vain looking for a story on transgender youth. Now we learn over the last five years that population has doubled. That can't simply be from uh, a population that was always with us that just felt too ashamed to speak up about it. I believe that what we have seen is a lot of encouragement of it. If that is not the case, then schools would not be arguing for concealing these things from the parents who love the children clearly much more than any teacher possibly could. You may dislike what I'm about to say because my libertarian nature is such that uh, I, I have a slightly different cut, but also because my observation is different from yours. Each of us has a different uh, observation of life, and mine is such that I can't know and wouldn't tell you sitting here today that the doubling of the population that is transgendered isn't a reflection of people who ultimately would choose that as their life in the absence of other influences. But I will not say, and I do say this instead, I will not say that that, that isn't influenced, and I will say it absolutely is influenced. We influence children all the time to do good things and not bad things. And there is just too much research out there that makes the point that social behaviors are contagious. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly, there is plenty of research about the contagion of suicide, right. that students, that children are influenced by the fact that others of their peers have committed suicide and then make that as a choice of their life or death. With some notion that they're in some kind of fantasy universe in which they get to make multiple decisions and killing oneself is only one of many that once made that decision can somehow be undone. And there are very few uh, notions of reality in which one can have posited multiple universes for the same human being and have suicide being one of the options that gets played out as if we have nine lives like some cats. That's the sadness here. So while I won't say I don't I can't tell you that it is not possible that the number of transgender kids being revealed isn't a reflection of true values. Um, I can say that given the contagion of social behavior among young people and the very fact that we spend our lives trying to teach our children good lessons and not and to avoid bad lessons then what else is it about that they don't jump fully formed out of our foreheads that we as adults influence children and their behavior and you don't get to pick and choose which of those things you think you're teaching because as my children will tell you 
I taught them workaholism. (laughs) They observed me too many times working too many hours. And their notion as a parent confessing before all is that somehow that work was more important than they were. Now, do we have good relationships? Of course we do. But I can't I won't go to my deathbed not knowing that. That that those lessons were being learned even when they were not intended. The very reason the shutdown of schools was so devastating to children. It's not the 10 lesson points that the teacher's trying to convey in the classroom at any given moment. It's the hundreds, if not thousands of lessons that are being taught continuously to children in those environments where we try to model good behavior. And if you're going to model and have a role model of a uh, a transgender uh, person who is reading stories to children and then argue that that role model is not conveying lessons that are unintended, you're full of it. I, I, I can live with everything you just said uh, without disagreement. Uh, I would ask people in the audience when they encounter these things, look for the words, words uh, you were quoting from, uh, from a practitioner earlier, look for the words role and model. Look for the words role and model. And if they are there, then, um, then the secret is being given away. I, I can't help but just point out, you and I are going to something called an art museum later to hear stories of, um, of what it was like to live in a culture where the state tried to shape people's ideologies through the use of art in some respects. That, 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 that is an irony that's not lost in me as we go to listen to people who have escaped communism at an art museum. Anyway, let's talk about the schools when we come right back and the school closures. It seems like uh, CBS is now on the case. Hugh Hallman and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I don't know if being a conservative means you're where the liberals are five years or three years before they get there. Um, But there's an awful lot of liberal catching up to a lot of the things that many of us have been saying for the past three years. There's a really important essay in the New York Times today by one of their regular liberal columnists, named Megan Stack. I urge you to read it, folks, if you can. Dr. Fauci could have said a lot more is the title of it. I'll just read the conclusion of what uh, of what this uh, Ms. Stack wrote, and I'll let Hugh say something about it. Um, let's see. Uh, we talk a lot about disinformation, she writes. The word has appeared in 27 New York Times articles this month. The anxiety is justified. The ease with which people can be misled, especially online, creates a perpetual instability. The country is awash in propaganda and manipulative fakery. But trying to clean up disinformation by quashing ideas that somebody deems undesirable, perhaps from a government employee, an academic think tank, a social media team, this creates its own dangers. Um, And what she's talking about is that being done precisely by none other than one Dr. Anthony Fauci. And it led to the story that we will also talk about uh, coming out of CBS, Mr. Hallman. So we've discussed over this hour the fact that modeling behavior teaches lessons. And the modeling behavior we saw with the launch of the COVID efforts by our government was that they should be followed, that follow the science as we learned 
fairly early on. What they mean by that is follow the science they want you to follow and not the science that others who disagreed with their narrative might argue. So then the move was to uh, disembowel those people who disagreed with them, call them uh, fakers, call them liars, call them uh, COVID, the, deniers. Uh, COVID deniers, the those science with... Deniers. Yes, I, exactly. All of those phrases. And here we sit now with the consequence of that behavior. Did Anthony Fauci and did his handmaidens really believe that we wouldn't eventually, those of us working on this, eventually dig it out? Well, we dug it out pretty early and we're talking about it. And the next move was to ban people like you and me from the radio and from other sources of information that that Facebook would take down anybody who raised the question about whether or not it was possible, just possible, for the COVID-19 virus to have been created, whether intentionally or accidentally, in the lab in Wuhan. Mm -hmm. That there would be a lab next to a wet, uh, bizarre market where bats would be distributed to begin with, among other kinds of questions that were raised. And the unintended consequence, ultimately, I think, I do believe it was unintended, is that the lesson was taught, that these people ultimately are not trustworthy. And what that has done for all of us or to all of us is to to reduce the reliability that we feel toward our government and government agencies and those who speak on its behalf. That's devastating to a republic. That's devastating to a democracy. Because if you now cannot trust the people who are speaking from that podium, you have a totalitarian regime problem that nobody will believe you. And when we have real crisis, that will undermine the value and ability of being together in a society. And here we had the leader of this cause, who, as this New York Times piece particularly articulates, was intimately knowledgeable and involved with the Wuhan lab in question. The U.S. government funding, which a senator probed and probed and was called all kinds of names for raising the point that, in fact, there were efforts to improve, enhance the genetic uh, viability of certain diseases and that somehow that was going to be denied. And Anthony Fauci knew it all along. And Friends and colleagues of his knew it all along. And worse, at the time he was denying the possibility, just the possibility, he was in conversations behind the scenes about that very fact. Now, one can make the argument he's trying to protect us from ourselves, but that is not the basis for this society. This society is based on the notion that facts and information allow us all to process what we need to know to make decisions. And the challenge we now face is those very people who are arguing that anything contrary to their view was disinformation, have clearly engaged in disinformation, and now have made it much more difficult to tell truth from fiction. Yeah. You end up, as as Ms. Stack writes, uh, you end up going down a road that leads to societies, she mentions a few, that she's traveled throughout Egypt, Russia, China, that we begin to ape her words. You end up in a society where nobody really believes anything. That is the danger here. Um, People might tire of me quoting it, but I think it's prescient. Uh, and poignant um, for those that didn't see the HBO series on Chernobyl. Have you seen it? It's it's chilling uh, and worth watching. Um, adult eyes, I would suggest, at least at first, uh, because of the narration, that opening line narration from the uh, chief physicist at Chernobyl who asks, uh, what is the cost of lies? 
it's not that we will no longer um, be telling, that we will no longer recognize the truth. It's that we will no longer be able to understand the difference between truth and lies ever again. And that's what this writer had said at the end of traveling through places like Egypt, Russia, and China. You end up in a society where nobody really believes anything. At the same time, people who tell us that warn us against conspiracy theories. Well, they're the cause of them. They are the conspiracists. They run run people towards chasing down conspiracy theories because we can't believe what they tell us in the first place anyway, much of which has borne out to have been proven true when it was first labeled a conspiracy theory by exactly Anthony Fauci himself. Which brings us full circle to this top of the hour, which is those who want to promulgate messages think that uh, only conservative messages can be learned by students and children, and so they've not. We have to avoid ever teaching them, and only the lessons they want to teach are are somehow neutral, value neutral, and yet lessons matter. And the lesson Anthony Fauci inadvertently taught most of us is not to trust him exactly. or anyone else he's been involved with, which guts most of our trust for the U.S. federal government. Yeah, the fault lies not in our stars. Indeed, yeah, it lies with this government that lied to us and the movement that was so very anxious, superciliously anxious to promote those very lies as well. There's something about the willingness to believe these things from a movement that claims itself distrustful of authority in the first place. huh? And what I'm gr- more gravely concerned about are people like you and others who worked so diligently to tell the truth and were excoriated for it. Where do you get to go to get your reputation back? You and others, Hugh. You and others. You and me both. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Those are the uh, dulcet uh, sounds of my friends Thano and Dimitri Sanis, uh, guitar players extraordinaire here in the Valley. Uh, Folks, how do you think the administration is handling the economy right now with the stories about banks, of course, stock market volatility, possible recession on the horizon? What if you could invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return not correlated to the Fed or the stock market? It's a portfolio where you'll know what each monthly statement will look like with no surprises. You can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like, and no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. This is a secure collateralized portfolio that delivers a high fixed interest rate, up to 10.25%. I'm asking you to check out my friends at Y-Refi. They're local. You can visit with them. I know them very well. Honest, trustworthy folks, and you won't get a sales pitch. They leave that up to the likes of me. Why Refi, a due diligence approved firm, allows you to earn up to, as I said, a 10.25% rate of return. That's right, a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then R-E-F-Y.com. Or give them a call at 888-Y-REFI-34, 888-Y-REFI-34. It was the height of World War II when uh, my favorite Supreme Court Justice Robert Jackson, who was the last Supreme Court Justice to not go to law school, who had a clerk working for him named William Rehnquist, wrote an opinion in a case called uh, West Virginia v. Barnett. And he wrote these very important words four years before he went to Nuremberg to prosecute Nazis by taking a leave of the Supreme Court to do so and then returning to the Supreme Court afterwards. 
He said, uh, those who begin coercive elimination of dissent will soon find themselves eliminating dissenters. Enforced unification of consent maintains only the unanimity of the graveyard. Well, there's an awful lot of graves and there's an awful lot of bodies on the highway as a result of the enforced unification of consent that this author at the New York Times was driving at and getting at in her piece today. It gives us really no pleasure to say, see, or look, we were right. It's really coming from a sense of sadness that it's taken so long to appreciate that because these graveyards would be far less empty if we didn't have to go to this horrific experiment. It's enough experimenting with people's lives. Let's go back to true science. Let's go back to the true purpose of what the media was built and designed for in the first place, to examine the government, not to ape it and become its mouthpiece, and to attack fellow reporters, analysts, and thought leaders, which you all are. And I thank you for joining us on our excursion today, pursuing it. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. Thank you, Hugh Holman. I'm Seth Liebson, and class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.